Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Again, our new year of body life, church life together, we started this sermon series called Surprise the World. And what we're talking about is what would it take, how could we possibly live out our faith in ways that would spark the curiosity of people around us who don't yet know Jesus? What would it look like if our faith inspired questions? In fact, last week I suggested that many of our non-Christian neighbors already have a negative or an ambivalent set of assumptions about what Christians are like and what churches are like. And if our lifestyles don't ever disrupt their expectations, If the way that we live looks so much like the way that everybody else lives, except that we just have a standing appointment on Sunday mornings that they don't, if the way we live doesn't look any different, then there will never be a reason for them to ask why we choose this way of life, why we choose this faith. And so last week we opened up a passage in the book of Titus where Paul was giving instructions about how to teach Christians to live lives that were questionable. And I don't mean lives that were sketchy. I mean lives that people wanted to ask questions about. How do you live a life that inspires other people to ask, why do you do that? Why are you like that? What led you to that decision? And I believe that It's the responsibility of Christians in every generation and Christians in every culture to try to figure out what does it look like for me to live a questionable life in my context, in my time and place, in my neighborhood. What does it look like for me to live a life that inspires questions? In fact, I think that hard work of discerning that, of thinking through that question, that's what helped Christianity transform the Roman Empire from the inside out. I want to tell you a little bit about what it was like to be a Christian in the fourth century, in the years of the 300s, you know, 1700-something years ago. Most of the world's Christians at that time lived under the control of the Roman Empire. And life was hard for most of the people, very hard for most of the people in the Roman Empire. Most people in that day and age were very poor. Many of the people lived in slavery. There were no social services to help people who were in need. There were no institutions to help people who were sick. There were no hospitals. There was no health care to speak of, and it certainly wasn't available to most people. But in that time, Christians developed a reputation for taking care of other people. 
not only taking care of each other, but they developed a reputation for taking care of their neighbors, whether they were part of their church family or not. In fact, during that time in world history, it was very common for there to be waves of disease that would travel through a culture or a community. There would be plagues that would make their way through. And history tells us that time after time, there would be a plague that sounds like it could have been smallpox or cholera or something like that based on how they describe the symptoms in the history books. And in those times, people who, most people, when they noticed that someone in their household was starting to show symptoms of disease, they would kick them out of the house. They would expel them from the home, and that person was typically left on their own to fend for themselves, and usually the ending of that story was not positive for them. But during that time, Christians developed a reputation for stepping in and providing care and comfort for their neighbors, even for people they didn't know. During that time, there was a Christian historian, an educated man named Eusebius, and he wrote about this, and he said, the zeal and the piety of the Christians are obvious to everyone. He said, in this awful adversity, in the midst of one of these plagues in the early 300s, he said, the Christians gave practical proof of their sympathy and their humanity. And all day long, some of them tended to the dying intended to their burial countless numbers he said with no one to care for them other christians gathered together a multitude from all parts of the city those who were withered from famine and they distributed bread to them all and i want you to hear this last line that eusebius writes down he said the christians deeds were on everyone's lips it's like all people can talk about. And they glorified the God of the Christians. He said all of the people who were seeing what the Christians were doing gave praise to the Christians' God because they were the only people in town who seemed to care and seemed to help. Now, it's difficult for us to imagine what that situation would have looked like and what it would have felt like. It's so different from our time and place because in our time and place, if there's somebody who's deathly ill, we call 911, right? I mean, we, we Get, we get trained professionals to bring a truck and bring a bed and carry them off to a place where people are not only trained to take care of them, but who have all sorts of measures and equipment to be able to protect themselves while they care for the sick. It's totally different for us. But in the Roman Empire where those services were not available, it was the hospitality of the Christians that captured everybody's attention, everybody's imagination and it always it stood out to everybody in fact it made it all the way to the upper echelons of society those stories and eventually the emperor of rome took notice and he began to be a little bit concerned he began to be frightened that maybe the christians were going to become a threat to his control over the empire the emperor of rome became terrified that he was losing control of his dominion because of how people were turning to Christianity and turning away from the Roman gods. And it had always been just assumed that Caesar, the, the emperor, was the son of a god. And so he felt like he was losing control. This is a real story. In the year 362, Emperor Julian, you can look this up in history books. This is not part of something that comes out of Scripture. This is just Roman ancient history, all right? 
the year 362, Emperor Julian sends a letter out to a bunch of his officials and a bunch of the leaders of the Roman cult religions, the pagan religions, the idol-worshiping religions. He sends out this letter, and he's complaining about how the worship of the Roman gods is in freefall, like nobody is participating anymore. He's worried that everything that has allowed him to continue to hold a place of spiritual stature among his subjects is, in, is under threat. And he says the worship of the Christian God, it's just up and to the right. I mean, everybody is latching on to this. This letter's not in the Bible. It's just in history books. You can read this for yourself. But Julian complains to his officials, complains about how the Christians are providing for the needs of strangers in his empire. Can you imagine? Can you, I mean, he's so mad that people are getting food, right? He's complaining about how the Christians go and care for the graves of the dead. He's complaining about how they feed the hungry and take care of those who are ill. Emperor Julian was distressed. In fact, he was terrified because the Christians were so generous, so hospitable, that Roman citizens were being drawn to Christianity in droves, and he felt like he was losing influence. And so he needed a solution to this problem, this growing problem, and he knew that if he just tried to use all of his authority and all of the military strength if, to just put a stop to the Christian's hostility, he knew that that would cause a revolt and that it would backfire. And so here was Emperor Julian's strategy laid out in this letter. He gave his officials and the priests of the pagan temples orders to imitate Christian hospitality. He said, I'm sending all of you supplies. I'm sending you huge stores of grain, and I'm sending you huge stores of wine. I'm sending it to the temples so that if there are people in need in your community, they'll get it from you and not get it from the Christians because we got to fight back against this. His strategy was, I'm going to tell my, all of my officials and all of the priests that they are supposed to outlove the Christians. He wanted these pagan priests to start caring for the sick and providing for the needy. And history says it didn't work. He couldn't persuade his officials and his priests to show love to the least of these because love was not the basis of their religion. They never believed in the first place that the gods loved humans, and so there was no reason to teach that humans should love one another. And so Julian's strategy didn't work, but it was the Christian way. It was the Christian way of living, which was so countercultural and so inspiring and so attractive that people found themselves being drawn to it. And from then on, Christianity began its rise, and Julian, who was would become known in history as Julian the Apostate, or Julian the one who left the faith. Julian would be the last of the Roman emperors who was not a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And this is what I hope we can aim for together. Because if we're going to be the kind of people who surprise the world, if we're going to be the kind of people who inspire questions in our community, then we've got to figure out, like the fourth century Christians did, how do we live here and now in a way that's inspiring? How do we live?
live here and now in a way that's questionable. And I think we can learn something about how to do this from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. So if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I'd be thrilled for you to join me. Or you can open the Heritage app and click the Bible button. It'll take you to the exact chapter that we're working in. But Philippians chapter 2, like so many other books that we've studied, the book of Philippians is actually a letter. It's a piece of correspondence, 2,000 years old written by an early missionary named Paul, and he was writing to a group of Christians, to a, a little church in the Grecian city of Philippi. And Paul wrote a lot of letters. We have a lot of these letters that are preserved and handed down for us in the pages of our New Testament. And, and we, we study these so we can learn about Paul's approach to faith and ministry. But Philippians may be the most peaceful and the most encouraging letter that Paul ever wrote. It's not because the Philippian church didn't have problems. They had a few. But Paul, when he wrote Philippians, he was, he was not trying to write and, and use all of this, you know, rhetoric and influence to try to straighten them out. He wasn't trying to iron out some heresy or defend his own ministry or his influence or his decisions. He was writing to his Christian friends. And he wanted to tell them how thankful he was for them. In fact, he was in prison. That first song we sang today, sometimes you got to shout from the prison. You know, here's Paul. He's in prison while he's writing this letter to his Christian friends in Philippi. And he's giving them some gratitude and some encouragement. He's wanting to try to convince them to just keep at it, to keep trying to do what God would have them do. And near the beginning of chapter 2, Paul gives them some instructions about their life together and about the attitude that the Holy Spirit was trying to build inside of them. Now, we're just going to read two sentences, okay? Just two sentences of this passage here. But I want you to listen and hear the countercultural nature of the instructions that Paul is giving here. He says in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, when you read these two sentences, there's kind of two big concepts that Paul's addressing here, and one of them is like an internal motivation of the heart. He's talking about an attitude that's inside. He's talking about something that you feel, something that you decide, something you believe. He says the actions that we take should come from an attitude that does not include selfishness or vanity. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And this is a great challenge for us, right? Because I got to tell you, and you already know this about yourself too, as I go through my day, the most natural thing for me to do as I carry out my responsibilities and go through my schedule, the most natural thing for me to do is to think about what I want and how what, what's happening around me affects me, right? I mean, on my best days, I think first about the people in my immediate family, okay? But, but usually, usually I'm just thinking about me because that's the most natural thing to do. And in fact, I think that that tendency to look inward, to be selfish, to be self-focused, I think that's reinforced by the particular culture that we live in. It's not true of every culture, but in our society, we put a heavy emphasis on individualism, right? 
I mean, we are a do-it-yourself kind, you know, I mean, what's, what do all the hardware stores say? You know, you can do it. We can help. Like a do-it-yourself kind of deal. As a society, we believe in personal responsibility. We talk about building up your own brand and managing your own image. We think ambition is really important in this culture, and anyone who has no ambition is thought of as lazy and aimless in our culture, right? That's part of our context and who we are. But Paul is talking about a totally different way of looking at the world. Paul says selfishness and self-centeredness and vanity should have no place in the hearts of Jesus' followers. And he bases all of that not on his, not on his own impressions or his own you know, education or his own understanding. He bases that on the example that we get from Jesus. In fact, if you were to read through the rest of Philippians 2, what you'd find is that Paul says you should imitate the attitude that Jesus has. And then he recites what we think would be the words to an ancient song, a, a song that the Christians would sing together about Jesus's character. And in that song, they talk about how Jesus was the one who had every right to be self-centered. Jesus was the one who had every right and every excuse to demand that people serve him and look at him and focus on him, but he didn't do that. Instead, Jesus didn't put himself first. He put other people first. This is what the ancient song said. Jesus didn't try to get ahead of others. He tried to bring others along to where he was. This is the character of who Jesus is, and that's the example Paul's trying to hold out for the Philippians and in front of us too. He's encouraging them. He says, have the same attitude as Jesus, the selfless, unconceited attitude of Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. Because that's talking about an inner attitude. And he goes the next step. He talks about how the attitude of our hearts leads to the actions that we live out. And so he says in that, those verses, verses 3 and 4, each of you should look out, not for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Now I want you to think about that, that term, look out. Each of you should be on the lookout not for what you need, not for what you want, not for what you desire, but be on the lookout for what other people need, what other people want, what other people desire. And this takes some practice, right? I mean, this is a challenge to, in, in, to, to incorporate this into your life, but sometimes life will just give you an opportunity to learn, right? I mean, think about it. How many of, some of you can remember what it was like to have a newborn in the house? Yeah? You have a newborn in the house, and suddenly, suddenly, whether you're ready or not, you got to arrange your entire life around somebody else's desires, right? You have to arrange your entire life around somebody else's needs. And you're constantly on the lookout for the pacifier or the bottle or the boppy or whatever it is because you're trying to satisfy somebody else's needs. And you can't just sleep whenever you want. Don't be ridiculous. That's not allowed. You can't sleep on the schedule you're used to. You sleep on somebody else's schedule because that's what that situation demands. And that stage of life can be so tiring and it can be so demanding, but I'm convinced that it's a gift from God because God's teaching us what it's like, teaching us what it means to put somebody else's needs ahead of our own. 
And Paul really wants us to learn this. Be on the lookout for ways to put somebody else's needs ahead of yours. We're not immediately used to doing that, but if we train ourselves to be on the lookout, if we train ourselves to search, I think what we're going to find is that the opportunities are plentiful. We just weren't looking for them before. And so here's what I'm going to do as we take this teaching the next step together this week. We've said in the last two weeks that our task is to find ways to live out our faith that provoke curiosity from people around us. And we've said today, we've read Paul's instructions about looking for opportunities to put other people's interests ahead of our own. And so this week, I'm going to challenge us to something together. I'm going to challenge us to blend those two ideas and to intentionally look for three opportunities to bless people this week. All right, I'm giving us homework. And what I, when we talk about blessing someone, we're talking about doing something that, something that helps them feel encouraged, something that helps them feel appreciated, something that helps them feel provided for. And there are lots of creative and excellent ways to do this. Some of these you're already doing. But there, here's three big categories I want to get you to think of, okay? As you're blessing people, as you're looking for opportunities to be a blessing to somebody else, one of the simplest ways to get started is through words of encouragement, all right? Now, let me, let me remind you here, what we're trying to accomplish is being a blessing in ways that provoke questions, all right? And so if your word of encouragement is nice sweater, or if it's a social media like, you know, that's a, that's a nice thing to do but it's a very common thing to happen. It's not going to be the kind of thing that inspires any kind of questioning. It's not going to be the kind of thing that somebody would say, why did you do that? They're going to think, oh, thanks, and that's it. And so as we're looking for ways to use words of encouragement to speak to somebody, what we're talking about is going the extra mile, crossing the bridge of vulnerability, actually paying close enough attention to give the kind of encouraging word that touches somebody's heart and doesn't just make them feel warm and fuzzy for a second. Okay, We're talking about the kinds of words of encouragement that notice who a person really is deep down and, to, and says something complimentary about that. We're talking about the kinds of words of encouragement that notice effort and notice attempts and notice things that somebody's passionate about and connects on a deep level. We're talking about the kinds of words of encouragement that make people think, wow, Nobody's ever said that to me before. I needed that. Mark Twain once said, I can live for two months on a good compliment, you know? And that's, that's about right, you know? But some compliments aren't that good. They're just niceties. And we're talking about the kinds of words of encouragement that go deeper than that. That's one opportunity. Another thing you could do is to look for opportunities to perform acts of kindness for somebody, okay? And there's a lot of different ways to do this, but remember, we're talking about acts of kindness that somebody's going to notice going 
above and beyond what they're used to, okay? So this is more than just, you know, two cars going to the same parking lot and you, or parking space and you saying, go ahead. This is more than just somebody opening the door for somebody else because those things happen all the time in our culture. We're talking about the kinds of acts of kindness that the recipient would say, wow, I didn't expect anybody to want to do that for me. I didn't expect anybody to be willing to take the time or to put in the effort to do that. I didn't expect anybody to notice that I needed that. We're talking about the kinds of acts of kindness that connect with somebody's heart and not just generate a thank you. You know, we're talking about connection. There's a third one I want to list, and that is that you can find ways to give a gift to somebody else. This is a great way to be a blessing, but as you know, there are lots of instances, lots of circumstances, lots of occasions in our culture where gift giving is almost expected and where it seems very typical, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of gift giving where somebody feels like they saw my need. They saw what I needed and they took it upon themselves. They saw where I had lack and out of their abundance they shared with me. We're talking about the kind of gift giving that is inspired by knowing how much we've already received. And I want to suggest to you that as you're looking for ways to be a blessing to three people this week, Many of, you are, many of us are already doing this for the people that are in our inner circle, like the people that we love the most, right? I mean, parents know how to give good gifts to their kids. But I want to invite you to consider that this could be an opportunity for us to expand those borders and to see what God would do with it, all right? So I'm going to challenge you this way. As you're looking for ways to be a blessing to three people this week in meaningful ways, I want you to try to focus on doing that for at least one person that you know is a Christian and at least one person that you know is not a Christian. Which means it's not just a random stranger because they could be, you know, the preacher someplace else. Like it, 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 it needs to be somebody that you know them well enough to know that they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And I'm not asking you to preach a sermon to them. I'm not asking you to say anything in particular to them about Jesus or about, or about religion or anything like that. I'm asking you to look for a way to be a blessing to somebody in Jesus' name. I'm asking for you to look for ways to surprise the world. And as you do this, as you do this, I want us to share it together. And so there's one other level to the challenge. I'm going to ask you, if you, know enough, if you know two or three people in this church family, I'm going to ask you to be the one who initiates a text message thread and says, hey, I'm going to try Brock's challenge this week. Let's talk about what it's like for us to do this together. Let's talk about how, what it's like to look for opportunities. Let's talk about the opportunities that we missed and we let pass by. Let's talk about the opportunities that we took and how it went and what that was like. Let's talk about it together because what we're really trying to do is build a new habit, 
okay? It's not, there's no quota here. It's not that three blessings per week is the magic number or anything like that, okay? I'll give you an A-plus on whatever paper you want me to sign. That's fine. But we're not talking about a certain number. What we're talking about is building a habit because if you you become the kind of person who's looking for opportunities to bless somebody, if you become the kind of person who blesses at least three people new every week, what's going to happen is you're going to become known as a generous person. You're going to become known as somebody who's kind. You're going to become known as someone who's selfless. And that's the kind of identity, that's the kind of reputation that, it, reputation that inspires questions. I read a research paper about a researcher studied two mission teams that were going to spend a summer in Thailand. And both of these teams had received different types of training and had different religious backgrounds. They were both Christian, but they had different, different backgrounds. And so they were both going to Thailand for the summer, but one of these teams' strategy was they were going to go to Thailand for the summer and spend the whole time preaching to anybody that would listen, telling them the good news about Jesus. They were going to try to gather crowds, try to get people together for assemblies, and they were going to preach the message of Jesus, which is beautiful. It's an incredible aim. But there was this second team who said, we're not going to host any gatherings. We're not going to stand on street corners and try to talk to strangers about Jesus. They said, all we're going to do is we're going to spend the summer in Thailand trying to look for ways to be a blessing to the community there. And in this research paper, they said both teams had a lot of incredible, great things happen. But at the end of the summer, it was the team that just tried to be a blessing that had 50 times the number of converts come to faith in Jesus that summer. All they did was just go and try to give gifts and words of encouragement and acts of kindness. And in the midst of all of that, there were people that wanted to ask questions like, why did you do that for me? Why were you so kind to me? Why were you so nice to me? And it led to people asking questions and having opportunities to hear the story behind the story. And I'm telling you that if you look back at Christian history, if you look back at the 2,000 years of people who have been following Jesus in every, on every continent and in every country and every culture, as you look back through Christian history, I'm telling you that the times when the church has made the biggest impact, the times when Christianity has been most attractive, the times when the most people have come to faith in Jesus has not been the times when Christians worked their way up into positions of power. It hasn't been times when Christians were writing the laws and making the rules. It's been the times when Christians were focused on the needs of others. It's been the times when there was a plague and nobody would help the sick people except the Christians. It's been the times in history when Christians were willing to do something that nobody else was willing to do. They were willing to show kindness that nobody else thought, thought it was even reasonable to show. It was the times in history when the Christians stepped in and demonstrated the fruits of the Spirit like love and kindness and gentleness. It was those times when Christianity has seen its biggest impact in the world. 
And it's different in every place. It's different in every era. It's different in every society. But the question we're asking is, what is it for us? What's it look like for us to live the kind of gospel-shaped lives that make people ask, what's up with that? Why'd you do that? Tell me more. And I'm praying that that'll happen for you as you begin to develop the reputation of being someone who wants to be a blessing.